welcome to People, Places, Planet Pod, the official podcast of the Environmental Law Institute, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization working to ensure a healthy environment, prosperous economies, and vibrant communities founded on the rule of law. Welcome to this week's episode of People, Places, Planet podcast. I'm Linda Bregan, a senior attorney here at the Environmental Law Institute and director of ELI's Center for State, Tribal, and Local Environmental Programs. Our podcast today is part of one of my very favorite projects, the Environmental Law and Policy Annual Review, or LPAR, as we call it, which is a 15-year collaboration between ELI and Vanderbilt University Law School. And therefore, it's appropriate that we're recording this podcast today here at Vanderbilt Law School with law school students in attendance. Briefly, LPAR seeks to identify some of the best ideas in the environmental legal academic literature each year that offer creative and feasible policy and law proposals. Our objectives are to bring these creative ideas to policymakers and practitioners who do not have time to read law review articles. And as a former policymaker, I can attest to that. Uh, And also we want to incentivize and recognize academics who take their work a step further than is traditional and actually translate their theories and ideas into practice. Basically, we're trying to bridge the gap between academia and the practice of law and policymaking. And last but not least, of course, we want to provide a first-rate educational experience for LPAR Vanderbilt students who read and discuss hundreds of articles each year during the selection process. You'll hear more about LPAR and how we pick the article we're discussing today from third-year Vanderbilt Law student, Connor Kreidel. Also with me today is second-year law student, Thomas Boyton. Together, we'll be talking with our guests today, Monte Mills and Martin Nye, about their article entitled, Bridges to a New Era, a report on the past, present, and potential future of tribal co-management on federal public lands. The authors throw in really impressive work, and and listeners, just to give you a sense, this is almost a 100-page article or report. And their work posits that the U.S. can meaningfully connect public land law to the federal government's longstanding trust-based and treaty-based responsibility to promote the sovereign and cultural interests of Native nations. They offer what they call a strategic playbook that includes numerous executive authorities, such as protocols for tribal involvement in monument designations under the Antiquities Act, as well as potential congressional actions, such as place-based legislation, all in order to enhance and engage in a new era of tribal co-management across the federal public land system. There's so much happening today in this area, so I know this is gonna be a really interesting discussion. Uh, Before we introduce our guests, I wanna make sure to thank ELI Research Associate Heather Lutke for her help in putting this podcast together, as well as Victoria Dorwood. And of course, my co-instructor for the LPAR course, Vanderbilt Law Professor Michael Vandenberg. Before we jump into the discussion with our guests, I wanna hand it over to Connor Cridal to provide a little more detail about LPAR and how we picked the article we're gonna discuss today. Connor? Thanks, Professor Bragan. Uh, Before starting, I would like to acknowledge that Vanderbilt University occupies the ancestral hunting and traditional lands of the Cherokee, the Shawnee, the Choctaw, Chickasaw, and Creek peoples. Today, these peoples have nation boundaries in Oklahoma, North Carolina, and Mississippi after the Indian Removal Act of 1830 led to the forced removal of southern tribes west of the Mississippi River. In particular, the university resides on land ceded in November 8, 1795 in the Treaty of Hopewell. I feel it is important to offer this acknowledgement before embarking on this discussion. So I'll talk a little bit about LPAR's article selection process and how we chose this article. As Professor Bragan indicated, LPAR seeks to publish the best environmental law and policy articles published each year, addressing pressing environmental issues. Um, LPAR, as Professor Bragan indicated, is a joint publication by Vanderbilt Law School and the Environmental Law Institute. It's also a class here at Vanderbilt that has 20 to 22 law students each year, made up of 2L and 3L members. Our selection process begins principally in the fall with anywhere from 300 to 500 potentially relevant environmental articles. And over the course of a few weeks, we cut this down to about 150 to 200 articles. Then working in coordination with professors Linda Bragan and Michael Vandenberg, over the course of the rest of the semester, these articles are sifted through, discussed, analyzed, and eventually voted on to reach our top 20. At the final stage, we consult our expert advisory board in reaching a top three to five to publish in the August edition of the Environmental Law Institute's Environmental Law Reporter. We also post that that top 20 in that same edition. 
And then today's article was chosen as an honorable mention because the class loved it so much. We thought it was such a thorough and detailed analysis of an incredibly important area whose nuanced connection to environmental law and policy deserves much more attention. Next, you'll hear from Thomas to introduce the authors. Thanks, Connor. We are here with Monty Mills and Martin Nye. Monty Mills is a professor and co-director of the Marjorie Hunter Brown Indian Law Clinic at the Alexander Blewett III School of Law at the University of Montana. And Martin Nye is professor of natural resources policy and the director of the Bull Center for People and Forests at the WA Frank College of Forestry and Conservation at the University of Montana. Uh, thank you both for joining us today to talk about your work and the possibility of tribal co-management on federal public lands. We're excited to have you guys here. Thank you, Thomas. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, thank you. Vanderbilt Law School is my new favorite law school. <laughs> <laughs> and, we, and we appreciate that. <laughs> well, I'd like to kick this off and then I'll hand it over to Connor and Thomas. But professors, can you tell um, us a little bit about your professional backgrounds, including how long you've been working on these issues and the centers that you're affiliated with at University of Montana? Um. Martin and I, I'm in my 20th year here at the University of Montana in the College of Forestry and Conservation, uh, where I focus on public lands and wildlife. Um, written quite a bit in that context about intergovernmental relations and federalism, and for better or worse, about uh, public lands planning. Uh, direct a small center, the Boley Center for People and Forests. Um, do a lot of consulting and advice in that outreach in that capacity. Uh, the Boley Center, named after a transformative figure who sort of transformed national forest law and management back in the 70s, Dean Arnold Boley, who worked with Marjorie Hunter Brown. And I'm Monty Mills. As was mentioned in the intro, I'm co-director of the Marjorie Hunter Brown Indian Law Clinic, which is named for uh, former interim dean and also longtime professor here at the Blewett School of Law, Marjorie Hunter Brown. Like uh, Dean Boley, a transformative figure here at the law school and in Montana. It, we have the honor of being the oldest Indian law clinic in the country. We were started by students and, and Professor Brown in the early 1980s. And I've been here in this position for about seven years. Prior to that, I was in-house counsel, the director of the legal department for the Southern Ute Indian tribe in southwestern Colorado. And in that role, I handled a myriad of different issues on behalf of the tribe and the tribal government. So I certainly appreciate the connection between real world practice and academic theory that uh, is supported by LPAR. Thank you both. We're delighted to have you here today and I'm going to hand it over to Connor. So to start this discussion, um, I think it's important to focus on how um, you two mentioned at the beginning of the article that the terms Native Nations, Indian Tribes, Indians, Native Americans, and Indigenous are used interchangeably throughout the report. Um, these are important things to keep in mind, and I wanted to ask if there was anything else you wanted us to consider with respect to nomenclature as we have this discussion today. Yeah, thanks, Connor. It, I will say we wanted to be intentional about the use of the terms and, and really be broad in our descriptors of tribes and, and really more, most appropriately, I think, Native nations. But also in doing that, I think we wanted to acknowledge the legal terms of art, Indian and Indian tribe, uh, which are defined terms by federal law and carry with them a lot of the historical baggage that we tried to excavate and uncover in connecting up federal Indian law and public land. So in terms of nomenclature, it's a question that always comes up, um, particularly I teach a class here at the law school, federal Indian law, and usually within the first couple of days of class, someone always says, well, should we use the term Native American? What what terms should we use? And I think generally the, the best approach is to use the most respectful term, which the term Indian may not be, but it also I think is important to recognize that is the legal term of art. So in terms of nomenclature for our discussion today, you'll probably hear us use different terms. All of those are intended to be a broad recognition of the nationhood and sovereignty of tribes, while also some acknowledgement of the, the legal terms of art of Indian and Indian tribes as well. Thank you, that's really important. Yeah, thanks professors for providing that scope. I'm wondering to what extent did you work with and consult uh, various tribes either in the formation or development of this project? 
And if you did, can you talk about how that shaped your research and how you went about understanding this topic? Yeah, sure. I'll, I'll start with this one too. Um, I think from the beginning of this particular project, we sought to be very deliberate and uh, transparent in terms of the work, what we intended to do, and to ensure that we solicited input from a broad range of folks who were interested in these issues. We worked with and, and put out calls for comment from a number of different folks, um, really to try and scope the range of issues that might be incorporated into our research. And in that regard, we spoke with folks from really national tribal organizations like National Congress of American Indians and the Native American Rights Fund. There were representatives from various tribes who, who provided some input, as well as others interested in sort of the collaboration between tribes and conservation organizations, um, including folks from uh, the Wilderness Society. We were really supported and the project really began um, with support support from Audubon Alaska and the Audubon Society. So we really sought to cast a broad net in terms of folks asking questions or, or posing issues that we hope to cover. And ultimately the goal was to provide a resource, not necessarily focused on the particular concerns of tribes or conservation groups or others, but rather that could provide a foundation for moving those discussions forward. Yeah, and a quick shout out to the Center for American Progress that uh, first put out a survey to multiple NG conservation NGOs and tribal organizations of what the most significant questions are regarding tribal co-management. So we sort of had it teed up right from the beginning. And then as Mani said, a sort of NEPA-like scoping exercise before every phase of the project. And we were also able to rely on some of our previous experiences Monty is being legal counsel, and I worked for a short time uh, working with the Blackfeet Nation and the Badger Two Medicine in the context of forest planning. So we could draw on some of these previous experiences as well. So you two touched on it a little bit there, but I'm curious, how did the project originate and what do you see as its role? Monty, you wanna start? Sure. It really began, well, a couple different ways, I would say. I think between Professor Nye and I having discussions about his interests in public lands and the tribal issues uh, I'd been working on and was familiar with, it really felt at the time and still does as if there are a number of issues sort of coalescing around these broader questions of tribal authority and public land management, particularly around the proclamation establishing, the original proclamation establishing Bears Ears National Monument back in 2016, as well as executive actions taken at that time. So there was some, I think, momentum building even before we began talking through what this particular project might look like. That momentum, I think, really crystallized with support from and outreach by Audubon Alaska in terms of initially at least wanting some work focused on co-management in Alaska and federal tribal relations with regard to public lands there. Um, that was really the, the seed that sort of started a lot of this uh, discussion. And as, as Professor Nye mentioned, through additional interest in, in other folks sort of weighing in, broader questions about the state of tribal co-management across the country really came to the fore to, and, and resulted in a shift in direction toward this more comprehensive report about co-management across the public lands here. And as we'll talk about a little bit later, phase two of the project is, is folk more focused on Alaska. So we came back to that original goal in our second phase once this original report was produced. And it, it really fundamentally, the, the, the work served or sought to serve two primary purposes. One, a number of folks had questions about well, what is co-management? What are you talking about? How does it, how could it work? What are the issues? And we really sought to try and for lack of a better term, dispel some of the myths and misunderstandings around tribal co-management or tribal federal partnerships as it relates to public lands. And secondarily, sought to provide some common foundation, some catalyst really for further discussion and progress toward uh, enhanced tribal 
authority over over public lands in particular. And in doing so, I think our, our goal wasn't to say this is how things need to move forward or this is the prescription, rather sort of lay out the legal and policy foundations, offer some thinking about ways in which those could be moved forward, but really leave it to tribes themselves and their federal management partners and other advocates to decide what that future would look like. And ultimately, I think that's really what what our main goal was, was to provide a resource to really support those future discussions. Well, I think Monty hit those issues well. I know there's just, there was so much um, confusion about the exact parameters of like what legal authorities tribes have in this context. And so we, we try to sort some of that out and make clear that um, there are existing processes, planning processes, legal authorities that can be strategically linked together to Britain. This is that bridge metaphor that we use in the title of the article, that all of these existing processes and authorities can be used to bridge to variations of tribal co-management. Because too often what we found in all of these cases is that some of those legal arguments were too often used by federal public land agencies and their lawyers to defend what is really a broken status quo. I think you teed up our next question quite well um, to shift gears and talk a little bit more about the substance of your piece. The report contains six core principles of a co-management approach to federal public lands. Uh, for our listeners, could you briefly explain the term co-management, what these six principles are and what their roles are? Probably not. <laughs> Just, <laughs> the term is so unwieldy um, and context specific. It's so bad that some people resorted to using, putting air quotes around the term and no one but Monty likes to use air quotes. So it, it tells you how bad things, you know, when I started uh, the first piece I wrote back in 2007 on tribal co-management focused on the National Forest Service, um, I was admonished by the agency to not use the term co-management because it was basically interpreted to mean a full sale delegation or sub-delegation of authority to the tribe and the agency can't do that. Fast forward 10 years and the agency talks freely about you know, co-managing, but it's just with state governments and not tribal governments. And so there's so much politics and it's depends on how it's used in statute and treaty and executive order. Um, and because of that, we, we think it's more useful, fruitful to think of co-management uh, as a set of core principles based on tribal sovereignty, the trust obligation, early integration of tribes in decision-making, traditional knowledge and so forth. And those principles can be and here we borrow from the work of attorney Ed Goodman, who takes a deep dive into off-reservation treaty rights in the Northwest. So those principles can be configured by tribes into all sorts of different models of co-management. And I think when you look, when you, um, when you trace it back in one of the, from the foundational cases of off-reservation fishing rights in the Northwest and the Great Lakes states, the common denominator, I think, that runs through all of those competing conceptions and definitions is the, is the sharing of authority and responsibility among two sovereigns. I'd just add a, a little bit to that, which is that fundamentally that really became the most important, I think, outcome of the work, which is an emphasis on avoiding confusion or misunderstanding or barriers really presented by conceptions of co-management and rather suggesting that the focus shift to those principles and really fundamentally what's happening on the ground. Is there really a sharing of information, of knowledge, of management authority that can take a number of different forms through a whole range of legal and policy avenues. But really that's what is going to make the difference in terms of uh, 
the sovereign to sovereign relationship between federal agencies and Indian tribes and fundamentally change potentially the ways in which federal public lands are managed. That's great. It's interesting to hear how turning to those core principles can make the term co-management a bit more flexible and applicable in different situations. Um, to shift gears and talk about LPAR Journal, LPAR focuses on the best policy solutions to environmental problems. And with that in mind, can you guys discuss the environmental rewards of enhancing opportunities for travel co-management of federal public lands? Uh, could you discuss the current environmental state of public lands and maybe how tribal co-management can help heal public lands? Mm, the, the current state of federal public, you might want to have another episode or maybe entire podcast season devoted to that issue alone. I think we're all pretty dizzy from the massive pendulum swings from Obama to Trump to President Biden. Um, and at the same time, we're coming off the heels of COVID, where I think there's a new relevance and salience of federal public lands, a sort of national escape patch, if you will. So the, re the relevance is, is clear. You know, that issue is, is interesting. I've, I've spent my career dedicated to the, both professionally and personally, to the conservation of, of federal public lands. And there's something I hold very dear to my heart. And I believe, uh, and I believe in the rule of law and I believe in enforceability and accountability and those legal concepts. And I think if done right, tribal co-management has an opportunity to lead to more effective, efficient management and conservation of, of, of public lands. I'd add too, in addition to the, the natural and biological sort of ecological benefits of a more sustained and fruitful engagement, particularly of tribal knowledge around these natural areas. There's also, I think, some sort of more abstract and conceptual benefit to a, a new era of tribal engagement and co-management. And, you know, the, the history of public lands from their creation to their current management really tells many stories. But one of them, I think, is of the, the oppression, invasion, and settler colonial state, both with regard to tribes and, and in some ways with regard to the creation of the entire federal system and the balance of federal and state power. And as we talk about at, at length in the report, I think that history and context is important to recognize and understand the ways in which the current legal and policy frameworks relevant to public lands management really have been built on those foundations of exclusion and expropriation and oppression of indigenous peoples. And so in addition to the sort of scientific and natural benefits that incorporating more tribal knowledge and tribal decision-making would have for all of the public lands, there's also the, the sort of restorative effect, the healing effects systemically of addressing and uncovering and, and really acknowledging that history and working toward a new framework that, that is built on a cooperative or at least a more respectful relationship between tribes, their interests, and these federal public lands. And I think we have to keep in mind too that public lands are part of larger systems, both biophysical and cultural. And there are thousands of miles of shared property boundaries between public lands and, and tribal lands. And so when we consider just basic resource management issues in terms of fire uh, that transcend boundaries, invasive species, off-reservation fishing, uh, uh, fishing rights, um, you name it, I think it's advantageous to sort of put it in that larger context as well. So to talk about the mechanics a little bit, unless someone has been steeped in Native American law or taken federal Indian law in law school, they may not understand the important role that trust and treaty obligations play. Could you explain the connection of those trust and treaty obligations to a co-management approach to federal public lands? Sure. Fundamentally, co-management has been happening 
whether called that or sort of acknowledged as tribal co-management for the better part of the last half century, particularly in the Northwest and in the Great Lakes region, as a result of treaty reserved rights by tribes and recognition of those rights by particularly federal courts who have upheld, interpreted, and protected those time-honored promises to ensure that tribes continue to have access to those practices across the landscapes. And because of those decisions, both in the Northwest and in the Great Lakes, tribes have been intimately involved in the management of shared resources like salmon or other wildlife resources with both state, federal, and private conservation groups, other nonprofits for decades. And all of that goes back to those historical treaty promises made by the United States and tribes, preserved in the Constitution as the supreme law of the land. And that legal basis then is root for that longstanding practice of co-management. And that's just one example, I think, rooted in treaties that has resulted in a really functional and practical and effective system of co-management and shared resource allocation and, and use uh, over the last 50 or so years. In terms of the federal government's trust relationships, equally historical and time-honored in terms of principles of federal law and dating back to the earliest decisions of the United States Supreme Court as it related to tribes and their status within the system, the law has understood the federal government to have unique obligations to tribal nations again, rooted oftentimes in those treaty promises, but those trust obligations have varied in terms of their strength or interpretation over the, the centuries that the federal government has been interacting with tribes, but really they are, are essential to the structure of the entire legal system and particularly protecting the unique federal tribal relationship that has existed since the federal government, even before the United States was created. That trust relationship then in terms of co-management really ensures or, or ideally would ensure uh, respectful sovereign to sovereign, government to government dialogue and relationship between federal agencies and their tribal partners. And that can take various forms, whether through consultation or in the land planning, land management planning process, or in specific legislation designed to sort of fulfill or carry out those trust obligations, or in the context of existing legislation, like the availability of self-determination contracts where the federal government contracts with tribes to take on previously federal services. All of those find root in that unique trust relationship between the federal government and tribes. It just takes different forms. And I think that if we link that together with the federal government's responsibility for managing the public lands on behalf of all Americans, then it provides a really foundational basis for a new co-management relationship going forward. Yeah, and just to add on uh, to Mani's statement, I think what we, we try to emphasize in, in both reports is that those treaty and trust obligations can no longer be entirely separated and divorced from the core missions and mandates given to federal public land agencies. And it's just too often that we see that those agencies essentially treat those obligations as sort of pro forma, uh, check the box exercises, and they're not fully harmonized into those core missions and mandates. And that's the sort of bridging that we try to do in the report. Some very exciting developments have happened since the publication of Bridges to a New Era. In the article published in 2020, you recommend a joint secretarial order on tribal co-management on federal public lands and provide language and a framework for how that could possibly be done. In November, 2021, joint secretarial order 3403 was issued by the secretaries of interior and agriculture to promote the use of tribal co-stewardship on federal public lands. And on March 8th, 2022, the house resources committee held the first ever hearing on tribal co-management on public lands. Can you tell us a little bit about these recent developments and why they might, what they might mean for the future of public lands? Lonnie, you want to start? Sure. Yeah, it's an exciting time. As I talked about a little bit, even before this work began, it felt as if there was momentum toward this 
new approach and really driven by travel interests and travel leaders like the Intertravel Bears Ears Coalition that really supported and, and promoted the original Bears Ears National Monument. Um, obviously, I think the, the joint secretarial order, as well as other executive actions that were taken around that same time in November 2021, seek to provide a basis, a framework for additional agency actions going forward that can really implement the principles of co-management that we talked about before. And that's where I think there's a lot of potential on the executive side. It remains to be seen, of course, how those broader policy statements and those commitments on the part of executive agencies will really be implemented on the ground. But it's a pretty remarkable statement particularly by both interior and agriculture, two departments, a joint secretarial order, promoting and, and really sort of demanding a new approach to co-stewardship that incorporates some of the same principles of travel sovereignty and the trust relationship. So I think there's a lot of interesting potential for that to be built on going forward. We'll see how those details come out. In terms of the legislative side, again, really exciting to see the first of its kind hearing about tribal co-management. Certainly, as with everything these days, there are politics involved and issues about you know, partisan concerns with, re with regard to development across public lands or other issues that may interfere with or, or get caught up in, in consideration of those legislative proposals. But fundamentally, there was, I think, broad agreement, broad recognition, even at in the legislative bodies about the importance and the relevance of those discussions to public lands, public lands issues going forward. And so on the legislative front, we have, as we talk about a little bit in the article, there are some existing models of legislative language, not yet applied in the context of federal public lands, but really applied in the, in the context of self-determination within tribal lands that could be the basis for new legislative models going forward. And I think there's a lot of potential there, to both on a sort of place-based specific basis, as well as kind of a broader tribal proposal basis to think about new laws that could really help invigorate uh, a new approach to co-management of public lands. No, it's certainly exciting. I mean, the restoration of Bears Ears, the joint secretarial order on co-stewardship, the House oversight hearing, some exciting developments in Southeast Alaska on the Tongass, where the president has made a new investment on tribal workforce development on public land. So it's, it's happening in, in real time. Um, I, I think you know, maybe a common theme that runs through all of these developments and something that comports with our, our sort of premise of both of our reports is that if change is going to happen, it's going to have to be compelled. Um, I, I think very rarely are you going to see federal public land agencies move to share authority. So if you go back to those early co-management cases, there's a need to compel change from the outside. And I think that those House oversight hearing, and hopefully just the first of several, uh, we're gonna see some new developments. And the joint secretarial order, I mean, it's subject to shifting administrations, of course, and will require vigilant oversight, but it's a really, it's hard not to be excited about its potential. And Monty, you hinted at this earlier on, this report is just phase one. Can you talk about where this project is going, phase two undertakings in Alaska, and your hopes for creating a living website to share best place and case practices? Sure. Yeah. As I said earlier, this we had really begun, I think, thinking and talking about co-management issues focused in Alaska. We broadened that scope to, to this report, which is really more broadly nationwide. And in the second phase, we've come back to focus on co-management in Alaska. And that second phase of the report is gonna be published here within weeks in the near future, March, 2022, uh, by the Columbia Journal of Environmental Law. And it really takes a same, similar approach. We, we took broad input as, as Professor Nye says, sort of a NEPA light scoping process for uh, folks in Alaska to provide input and really 
sought to tell the story of history and, and potential for co-management in Alaska, which in some ways is very different than the broader story of co-management told in, in this first phase of the report. In other ways, it's much the same in terms of the acquisition of territory. And although treaties weren't utilized in Alaska, still some of the same dispossession and exclusion, um, some different factors at play there in terms of statehood and the Trans-Alaska pipeline, but a lot of the same challenges facing effective federal tribal co-management in Alaska. And of course, the scale of Alaska is uh, much broader given the ubiquity of public lands across the what is now the state of Alaska and the ongoing um, use and reliance on those lands and resources by native people there. So that really seeks to again, provide a foundation for rethinking and approaching a new uh, paradigm for federal tribal co-management of lands and resources in Alaska. Concurrent with the joint secretarial order from November 2021, the administration has begun a series of listening sessions with Alaska Native folks and others about subsistence uses um, of federal public lands in Alaska. So as with developments elsewhere, we're hopeful and excited that uh, more progress will be made there. And then, as you mentioned briefly, sort of the bigger term, longer term goal is really to provide, as we've done, tried to do with each of these first couple of reports and articles, provide a resource of examples and MOUs, agreements on the ground, sort of practical resources that uh, folks may be able to tap into, whether from the federal or tribal side or, or states or whomever else, because as Professor Nye mentioned earlier, we may talk about the term co-management, but that really depends on the specifics of each individual situation and how these different bridges might be used. So we felt from the get-go, it would be helpful to try and build a database, a, a, a web accessible resource for folks to look at all of these different examples. We haven't, obviously we've been focused on these two reports. We haven't quite gotten to, to that third phase yet, but I think that's sort of the big picture uh, goal, at least in terms of helping build out more resources to support these discussions going forward. Mm -hmm. Was a I have to say it was a challenging project. I mean, maybe one of the most challenging of my career, just because everything is in Alaska is so complicated. But I mean, I think our, our general finding is that you know federal public lands are failing Alaska Native tribes, and um, we document a lot of cases where that happens. But at the same time, there is a there's a potential legislative pathway for tribal co-management that doesn't exist in the lower 48 states. And that's found in Title VIII of ANILCA, the Alaska National Interest Land Conservation Act, and its subsistence framework. While it's not working for the best interest of tribes right now, we've identified a number of ways that that administrative structure and set of regulations could potentially be modified uh, and co-management somehow fit within that Title VIII structure. And we also left the project feeling incredibly excited, I think, just the amount of tribal leadership um, and organization that is happening from the bottom up throughout the state. I think uh, we left the project pretty excited. I mean, tribes that are organizing in all sorts of different uh, intertribal organizations and consortia that are really showing how a new governance model on public lands is possible. I think I speak for all of us here at LPAR when I say we're excited to read your second report coming out just the end of March 2022. And talking back to your first report, um, at the end of it, you provide recommendations for a strategy playbook to be considered by Indian tribes and the federal government. Can you envision your legal analysis and recommendations being turned into an advocacy toolkit to be used by tribes? And if so, what's the best way to distribute that knowledge to tribes? Yeah, I, we're hopeful that it could be of service, whether as an advocacy toolkit or, or just as a way for tribes and their, their allies and advocates to, to support their interests moving forward. And 
as I mentioned earlier, our objective was not to provide a prescriptive sort of directive, this is how it needs to be done, but rather lay out these options and ways in which tribes and their allies or others could advocate for any one of these avenues and really try and bridge them together, to use the metaphor again, to serve the tribe's interests, whether that be sort of having more input with a federal agency in terms of management of a particular area or asserting or, or assuming greater responsibility for actual management, shared management of those areas. So I think ultimately it, it will be dependent upon the Situa the unique situations tribes may find themselves in, their existing relationships with their federal partners, and the landscapes and sort of the interests at stake. Um, and hopefully, both with regard to some of these suggested strategies that folks consider, but also and maybe in some instances, more importantly, with regard to the broader sort of historical framework and, and context that we tried to set out, it will be, at least be a basis for more fruitful discussions going forward. And if tribes or their allies are able to, to build on that and, and move the ball forward with regard to effective co-management, then however that happens, I think that's really what we had hoped and intended for. In terms, in terms of getting the word out, I think uh, really just continuing to talk about these issues, whether in the context of particular locations like at Bears Ears or, or Badger Two Medicine or really anywhere else, and really just offering to spread the word about the potential, the existing avenues that are there right now. I mean, tomorrow, a federal agency could enhance and improve its work with tribes on public lands planning that could result in improved tribal input and really sort of shared co-management of a particular area that could happen right now. I think having more dialogue about that and the potential for things to work better right now without Congress or anybody else doing anything is really the way in which I think we'll continue to see that progress move forward. Uh, it's certainly I... been one, oh, one of the most encouraging and cool things I've seen in my career is all of the conversation that has happened after release of this report. I mean, Monty and I have had literally dozens of on and offline conversations with tribal organizations, a ton of conservation NGOs, and so many others, just to kind of talk through some of these issues, the legal, the policy framework, the, the politics of it all, and so I think it's engendered in a, a really important discussion that way as well. Can I ask a follow-up question on that? Um, to address some of the barriers you've mentioned, such as the swinging political pendulum, it does seem that stakeholder support is incredibly important and not just tribal leaders. Um, can you give us a little bit more detail on the stakeholder landscape here, including the role of NGOs, as you mentioned? But I'm also curious about how the business community plays into this, particularly oil and gas interests. Yeah, we've had a number of dialogues, as, as Professor Nye mentioned, with, with a range of groups. Um, I think particularly from the MGO sort of conservation community side, there I've been surprised at the amount of interest and support and really positive, I think, engagement around these issues. I think maybe cynically so, I had sort of envisioned some concern about uh, uh, substantial work promoting and suggesting that anyone other than the federal government with public interests at stake sort of have a role in, in managing public lands and that there might be more opposition really from conservation oriented folks about increased tribal engagement or increased tribal authority there. But really, I mean, through I think the the recent examples, whether it bears ears, where there's clear collaboration and coalition building around shared interests in, in management, there's been a lot of support, certainly questions about, you know, well, what about the federal government's responsibility to ensure proper management and all of that? Legitimate concerns about how far, you know, tribal authority might go. But really, I think we've seen models of positive coalition and collaboration that 
really ultimately serve the benefit of all in terms of managing public lands according to their mandate. And I think that really gets to your second question about the development aspect or, or folks who may be more interested in extractive resource, the extractive resource from public lands. And we've, from the beginning, I think, taken the position that tribal engagement in, in partnership in the management of public lands doesn't necessarily result in one particular outcome for public lands. It may be that tribes are particularly interested, as they might be at Bears Ears, for example, in the conservation of a resource, but that doesn't negate the sort of multiple use mandate that the federal agency might have for management of a particular area, particularly BLM or Forest Service. And fundamentally, the tribal engagement in that process isn't about dictating which of those uses gets chosen, but rather providing a partnership about how those resources are managed in accordance with that existing mandate. So while we haven't, I think, heard direct sort of feedback, opposition, input around um, from the development community or maybe more development oriented, we've certainly talked through that with other stakeholders and really tried to be clear, this isn't about preserving public lands with regard to development or otherwise, it's more about on a sovereign to sovereign basis, tribes having the ability to weigh in and have their opinions respected by federal agencies who are making those decisions about balancing com potentially competing multiple uses across the public land. So it doesn't necessarily preclude or require one approach over another, rather it's about tribal engagement in the process of considering those approaches. Mm -hmm. And we've had a lot of success, I think, or traction framing tribal co-management in the context of federalism as well. And so just to make clear that we, there is already a sharing of authority going on on federal public lands. It just hasn't yet been extended to tribes to the extent that it's being extended to state and local governments. And so... Um, that's been a sort of helpful framing to sort of think about like the advantages of something that is more locally rooted, culturally based. And uh, our discussion with conservation NGOs, you can just look at some of the numbers in terms of uh, fish and wildlife management off reservation in the Northwest and Great Lakes states and those success stories. Uh, all of the conservation benefits that have flown from um, indigenous led conservation. And so that's, it's just been good to engage in that sort of discussion and to make clear that co-management could lead to the sort of stewardship and preservation of public lands. And tribes may also be able to be tapped to, for timber sale, administer timber sales and other sort of resource management projects. Great, thank you. I'm gonna hand it over to Connor to ask the last question. So as our discussion today showed, there's a lot of momentum in this area. With that in mind, what are some resources that you'd recommend to students or members of the community interested in learning more about the connection between Native Americans, public lands, and the environment? Read, read a lot of Monty's work. I'd start there. I, get, I, my, I do public lands and wildlife, so I have students that come into this not understanding that context whatsoever. And so I assign work like that Monty has written and Charles Wilkinson and others, uh, scholarly popular writing. But I've, I've had a lot of success uh, using these sequence of YouTube videos that work through the trust obligation, tribal sovereignty, and then they tie it into, because I have resource management students and they wanna see like how this translates into something on the ground. And I've had a lot of success with that. Um, and then I also have students, when, when I do a history of federal public lands at the beginning of the semester, I have students interact with this wonderful web resource called, managed by the US Forest Service, uh, Tribal Connections, which is like this online interactive mapping tool where you can look at that whole system of nat national forest lands and see what see that interaction with existing treaty rights and how much land has been ceded by various tribes. And it really helps make clear the living connections on public lands. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd reiterate all of those resources. Of course, Professor Knives' influential work on co-management, as well as we mentioned um, Ed Goodman, who we relied on quite a bit um, for thinking about the principles of co-management. I always tell students, particularly those who come and say, I want to read one thing to try and understand sort of the history and context of federal Indian law. To me, uh, Charles Wilkinson's American Indian's Time and the Law, it's older now is written in the early 80s, but it's still the the most accessible, I think, way to really put the context and frame around modern federal Indian law and tribal rights. Um, and also crossing the next meridian, obviously, a, another influential work of his that I think really encapsulates the, the modern challenges in particular, specifically here in the West, but I think more broadly for public lands management. There's also a number of things coming out now. I mean, a number of tribal scholars focused on natural resources issues who are approaching them from a more tribal perspective, which I think is invaluable in terms of thinking about what co-management could and should look like down the road, as well as some longer sort of histories. I know um, Professor John Leshy is, is publishing a new book on the history of public lands, um, which his, some of his earlier writing was really, really foundational in the basis of the public lands uh, work that we did in this first report. So I know that's a lot of reading for law students <laughs> trying, to get, trying to get out of school, but yeah, the, <laughs> a, a lot of good resources, obviously. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a fabulous list, and, and we appreciate it. Well, we are about out of time, uh, but I do want to give you each a chance. If you have one-minute closing comments you want to make, um, please feel free to do that. Um, Professor Mills? Well, I just want to say thank you so much, both for the work you all are doing and just for the opportunity to come talk about our work and, and have it represented in, in the LPAR. We're deeply honored by that selection, and, and it's been great to have the chance to appear virtually there at Vanderbilt and on the podcast. So thanks so much. Thank you, Professor Mills. Professor Nye? No, a total honor. Uh, a, a real highlight. And so thanks for having us. Thanks for uh, choosing our article and reading it and getting the word out. Well, thank you to you both. Um, I really wish you luck in your continued efforts to bring this important work to policymakers and practitioners. Thank you to Connor Cridal and Thomas Boyton for their very thoughtful comments. A special thanks to LPAR Symposium editor Catherine Denny for her help setting this up. Uh, thank you listeners for joining us today and please join us again soon for another ELI People, Places, Planet podcast. Thank you for tuning in to People, Places, Planet pod. Brought to you by the Environmental Law Institute. We would like to hear from you. So please send us your questions, comments, and ideas to podcast at ELI.org. And if you're interested in learning more about our work, attending one of our events, reading our publications, or becoming a member, please visit our website at www.eli.org.